Well, if you have your Bibles, join us in Luke chapter 10. And we're going to look at the same passage we looked at last week. We don't typically do it this way, but there's so much in this passage that I couldn't fit it into one lesson, and I felt it was necessary to break it up into two parts. So today we're calling it Loving to Live Part 2 as a part of our series called Lessons for Living from the Gospel of Luke. So Loving to Live Part 2 from Luke chapter 10, 25 to 37. But did you ever get a bad counterfeit? Anyone ever get a bad counterfeit or a cheap knockoff tea? You want to share something? Got hit with two fake 20s at work once. Really? You actually got a literal counterfeit money? Yeah. How did you know it was counterfeit? Uh, Jackson had a really big nose. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Really? Was the guy already gone by the time you realized? Long gone. Long gone. Wow. Okay. So he's actually seen counterfeit up close. Um, wow, that's quite an interesting story. So I'd love to see a picture. You don't have a picture of that, do you? I don't know. Yeah, a big, a big nose on Jackson before his nose job. Um, anyways, I'm going to share with you my top 10 bad counterfeits or cheap knockoffs, okay? And uh, spoiler alert, there's number 10. Number 10 is an attachable keyboard. Now what they do is th there's these things called iPhones. Maybe you guys have heard of them. And they know there's people like me, like less than one percenters out there who want a physical keyboard to type on. And I should have found a picture of that, but they actually have an attachable keyboard for your iPhone that you can kind of like put on there. And, and uh, I've kind of looked it up because I once had an iPhone thinking, boy, I really miss my Blackberry. Maybe I can find a keyboard for this thing. And they're out there, trust me, they're out there, but they're really bad. And uh, you know what it just had me longing for? Was the real deal, Blackberry. So. I went back to BlackBerry, I vowed I'd never leave unless I absolutely had to. So, in fact, we're recording on a BlackBerry right now. So, bad counterfeit. Bad counterfeit is a bad keyboard when you need a good keyboard. You guys obviously know by now, heard that I really like BlackBerry. But here's another one. Um, anyone ever have a futon? A futon couch? Now, I have to, I have to vent here a little bit because in my mid-20s, my parents decided to upgrade the couch that I sat on downstairs, that I napped on, to a futon. And one day I came home and it was gone, and there was a futon in its place, and they tried to convince me that it was better, more comfortable, better. Trust me, this is going to work out really well for you, Dad. <laughs> now looking back, I know what you were doing. You were trying to kick me out of the house. And it, I, think it, I think it worked in the long term. But uh, let me just tell you, futons are not comfortable at all. They're horrible. In fact, I think I have back issues to this day based on the decision that my parents made to get a futon. No, because it was your mother. It was my mom. <laughs> so I'm still holding a grudge and my back is still screaming at me. Thank you for that futon. But the real thing you need is a comfortable couch. If you have a futon, you know what I'm talking about. It does not make up for a comfortable couch. That is bad counterfeit number nine. Here's number eight, which really is applicable to this season we're in now. Fans versus air conditioners. Okay, now fan, when it's not that hot, is typically cool enough. But we've been having a long stretch this summer of really hot days. Have you noticed? 90s, humid, uncomfortable days. And I've noticed that fans just don't get it done when you're really, really warm. In fact, we have a pretty nice fan in our living room. It's one of those ones that stand up and blow air all around the house. They oscillate and things like that. And boy, it's not doing the job at all. We had to get an air conditioner in that window of ours as fast as possible because summer started out as a bang and 
Fans versus air conditioner. Fans are a cheap knockoff, a bad counterfeit for air conditioning. Here's one. I don't mean to step on any toes with these if you guys actually like what I'm telling you, but uh, has anyone ever spent Christmas in a tropical climate? Has anyone ever done that? Would anyone do that? Christmas, Christmas Eve? Where? Down in Florida. Florida? Christmas Eve in Florida. How? My father had a party. Oh, okay. So you made it back by Christmas? Uh, 10 o'clock at night. I arrived at the, uh, a buffet. Okay. It's about 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning. Sure. Wow. Okay. So, it was nasty. Yeah. Was it nasty because you didn't like Christmas in a tropical climate? <laughs> it was like Groundhog Day. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Beth. That's exactly my point. What I'm trying to prove to you today is Christmas needs the dimensions of snow, right? And winter and cold. I, I don't know what's on that tree. If you look closely, it looks like there's like beach toys hanging off that tree. What is that? You know, come on. That's not Christmas. We need snow and ornaments and lights and the carpenters singing and things like that. I think I would really not enjoy Christmas in a tropical climate. Maybe you guys would, but that's a cheap knockoff. Here's another one, number six. And I actually like these, and you guys have heard this before. Turkey burgers. Anyone like turkey burgers? They're a thing. Veggie burgers, turkey burgers, bean burgers, plant burgers are a thing now. Um, those are cheap knockoffs. Those are bad counterfeits. Now, I like turkey burgers. I absolutely do. And I make the healthy choice to eat turkey burgers because they're healthier for me. But if you're going to ask me without any ramifications, which one do I want to eat? Ten times out of ten, it is a cheese burger. Not a turkey burger, not a tofu burger. Give me a cheeseburger with bacon and cheese dripping off it. Everyone would choose a cheeseburger, I believe, over a turkey burger. Here's one that I know I'm going to step on some toes. Uh, any tea drinkers out there? Any tea drinkers? No tea drinkers? Do you drink tea? You guys like tea? Yeah, on occasion. Thank you. On occasion, I also like a cup of tea. I do not hate tea. But if you're going to ask me if I want tea versus coffee, I am going 100% coffee on that decision because tea is a cheap knockoff. It's a bad counterfeit. In fact, isn't it interesting that I found that picture of like the sad tea? It's interesting what you can find in Google when you just type tea sad. I was just so curious what was going to pop up and that popped right up and I thought that was brilliant. Isn't marketing easy, right? If I just show you a, a sad tea versus a happy coffee, it just makes the coffee look that much better. So tea is, a, tea is a cheap knockoff. Here's number four, which I've done, and you guys have heard this many times from me before, is Googling your symptoms versus going to a good doctor. Um, I think no matter what you put into Google as a symptom, I really believe this, you're going to die. If you type in itchy beard, there's one guy who died from that. And they're going to tell you it could lead to death. But if you go to a good doctor, hopefully you have a good doctor. Anybody have a good doctor? I'm not trying to steal your doctor, just curious. Um, I don't. So sometimes Google is my only option. But I did recently do something to my knee, and I found an orthopedic, and I went to him this past week, and he was a very good doctor. He talked it through. He did a great examination, told me the next steps to do. Much better than Dr. Google. So Dr. Google is a cheap knockoff. Um, hopefully you have a good doctor. Here's another one, and Dan, I know this one's going to hurt. And I don't mean this as any offense to anybody, but um, baseball versus football. Now, if you know me, you know I like baseball. I actually do. I like baseball. I like baseball 
when there's no football. Um, it's like, I like tea when there's no coffee. And I just thought that was an amazing picture, Dan. I just had to put that up there. The Phillies guy yawning and then the excitement of the... I told you, marketing is so easy. Um, but I like baseball when there's no other option. But when there's football and baseball overlapping, I really forget about baseball. I'm going to be honest. Because football is that much better. Anyone agree with me? Football over baseball? That, okay. We got some football fans. Yeah? All right. Football every single time. Here's another one. Number two. Soup versus chili. Again, I, I like soup. Soup has its place. I, I will not scoff at a bowl of soup unless there is an option for chili. Now, here at our church, every year we have a chili cook-off. You notice we don't have a soup cook-off. No one cares about soup. We have a chili cook-off because chili is one of my favorite foods, and uh, that's, they're just not in the same ballpark. Ch soup is a cheap knockoff. And here's my last one, number one, that my wife should be here for. Um, my wife likes the show Murder, she wrote. Yeah, it is a good show. It is, you know what? It is a good show. I agree with you, Mark. But it's a detective show or semi-detective show. And every single time I watch Murder, She Wrote, what am I thinking? Boy, I wish this was Columbo. Because <laughs> I like Columbo, and I think Columbo is so much better than Murder, She Wrote. And every single time my wife watches Murder, She Wrote, she has to hear from me how much better Columbo is and that we should watch that instead. So it drive her nuts every time she tries to watch Murder, She Wrote. By the way, how old are we? How old? Those shows aren't current at all. Those shows went off like 30 years ago. What's that? Yeah, that's, that's an old show. There's probably a new version of both of those, but those are some cheap knockoffs, some bad counterfeits. Here's another one that's going to transition us into our lesson today, okay? And now we're going to get serious a little bit. Uh, religious duty versus sacrificial love. That's kind of where we're going today. Religious duty versus sacrificial love. If you have your Bibles, join me in Luke 10 and listen again to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this time we're going to focus our attention on the parable. Last week we focused our attention on what led to the parable, the encounter between Jesus and the lawyer. So join me in verse 25 of Luke 10 and listen to the word of God. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, as your, and your neighbor as yourself. He answered to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion he went to him and bound up his wounds, putting on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. 
This is part two of our lesson from last week from the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. We're calling it Loving to Live. That's actually backwards. Loving to Live is the lesson today. We used our lesson last week to dissect the encounter between the lawyer and Jesus. Okay, because it's very interesting. It's very interesting what leads into this parable, this encounter between them. And if you missed that lesson, go to our website and listen to that because that's really important part one to this series that we're talking about today. But this time we're going to focus our attention upon the actual story, the parable that Jesus taught, and what we can gain from the understanding of that parable. Now we need to remember that the context remains important to a proper interpretation of this parable. We have to remember the lawyer's question it is, is what caused Jesus to speak about this parable. This parable is a response to a question. After being reminded from Jesus that the lawyer was bound to obey the two overarching commandments of the entire law that he knew, he knew it from his own mouth, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself, if he wanted to inherit eternal life, the lawyer turns to Jesus and says this question, asks this question, and who is my neighbor? Now, either the lawyer did not care to inquire who his Lord was, because ironically, he was speaking to him. The one he was engaging with, the one he was seeking to test and trap, was his Lord. But he did not care to, who, he did not care to believe it. Or perhaps he realized a profound connection. That in order to love the Lord, we must also love his people. He asked the question, who is my neighbor? It's interesting that the way to obey both the greatest commandments is by one action, loving your neighbor, because people are God's creation. If we want to love God, we must love his family. You need to love what God loves. And if you love what God loves, you also love God. It's the very same for your pastors. If you want to love your pastors profoundly, love our wives and love our children. If you give them love, you will directly impact my life and Pastor Mel's life, and you'll love us as well. It's just obvious. So in order to love the Lord, we need to love his people. And if you love his people, you love the Lord. So really, the two are down to one. One action loves both the Lord and your neighbor, and that's to love your neighbor. So... From the lawyer, the question he asked, and who is my neighbor, might have been a pointed question in order to obey God properly. Maybe that's what he was trying to do, obey his God properly. But I don't think so. I don't think this was the heart of the lawyer for three reasons. Number one, he came seeking to test and to trap his Lord. Number two, he was seeking to justify himself and make himself look good in front of other people. And number three, he didn't even believe Jesus was the Messiah the Savior and the universe, and the, excuse me, the Lord of the universe. So the lawyer's motives were not pure at this moment. But although the lawyer's question did not have the proper spirit because it didn't, his motives were not pure. It was a sneaky attempt to justify himself in front of other people. The answer to this question here today can help you and I quite a bit. If we pay attention and listen closely, the answer that Jesus gives to this question can change our lives. Because our goal is the same goal as the lawyer's. His first question was, teacher, what do I do to inherit eternal life? 
Our goal also is to inherit eternal life by believing in Jesus and by following him through obedience to his commandments. And we said this last week, his commandments are summed up in two. Love the Lord and love his neighbor. And as we just stated, if you want to love the Lord, you will love his neighbor. Do you see how simple it is? Do you see how simple and clear-cut Christianity is? If you want to follow Jesus, you will obey his commandments. If you want to obey his commandments, you will find the primary two. And if you want to love the Lord and love your neighbor, you will do one action. You will love your neighbor. But we need to remember eternal life is at stake here. Okay, Eternal life is at stake here. Now we're going to slice this parable today into two parts. We're going to look at the exhortation given to us to love our neighbors because that's very clear in the parable. But second of all, we're also going to look at the obvious parallel of how Jesus loved his neighbor when you and I were in need. And we're going to use the second part as motivation for the first part. Jesus' love, Lord willing, will motivate us to love our neighbor. His love for you and me will inspire and motivate us to love our neighbor. That's the goal today. So first of all, the story from Jesus is plain teaching on purpose. Okay, Even children are supposed to be able to look at this parable, take a close look at it, and come to the obvious and easy truth that we need to love our neighbors. That's how straightforward this parable is. The age-old commandment to love our neighbors is impossible to miss in the scriptures. If you're reading the Bible, you will see this over and over and over again because it's impossible to miss. None of us can justify not loving our neighbors if we are trying to do that today. But especially our neighbors in need, which this parable is going to make crystal clear. So there are seven details that I found to this parable, and I just want to walk through them so we understand what's taking place. Seven details to this parable, and they're very, very simple details, okay? Number one, the man who gets robbed and beaten in this parable is most likely a Jewish man. He is traveling the common pathway from Jerusalem, and I looked it up. Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level. And he's traveling down to Jericho, which is 240 meters below sea level, an 18-mile journey. And many priests and Levites lived in Jericho and worshipped in Jerusalem. So this was a common pathway for the Jews. It also may have been a treacherous path with many dangers and pitfalls because of its terrain. If you guys have ever done some hiking or descended from a hike, you will know that's kind of tricky terrain. But a lot of commentators believe, and I maybe can even prove this, that there are a lot of caves along the way where a lot of robbers could hide out in. That if they did want to pounce on someone, that would be an easy place to do it. So that's detail number one. This is most likely a Jewish man who's been robbed and beaten and is now lying on the side of the road. Number two, the man gets attacked. He gets attacked by robbers who rob him, strip his clothes, and beat him half to death. This man is now in very bad shape. If something doesn't happen, if he doesn't get help, he's going to die. That's supposed to be clear in the parable. Now, it's not hopeless because we said this is a common pathway for Jews coming back and forth from worship. People just like the man who, are, who is beaten on the road are going to come upon this man, fellow Jews. And they'll notice him, and he'll, they'll help him. And he should be able to get help and be okay, simply because he will find a brother or a sister going along the same pathway, notice him, and give him help. And by chance, 
somebody walks by the dying Jew, and it just happens to be a priest. A priest walks by the man on the side of the road. This is a man who helps the Jews find forgiveness and cleansing from their sins from the Lord. It seems the dying Jew could not have been in better position because the priest would not be any less of a person to help stop and love this man. You couldn't find anyone less than the priest to help and stop and love this man. But no, the priest does something very shocking in this tale. Not only does he not stop, he walks all the way to the other side of the road and continues on his journey. I want you to just simply imagine that. Imagine you're dying on the side of the road, and I don't know if, he can, if he's conscious and is watching this, but a priest comes upon him, notices him, and then walks all the way to the other side of the road and continues on. A priest. We're not told why he passes by the man. We don't know. This parable is most likely a hypothetical story, maybe didn't even take place. So the whys here are not that important to the tale. Okay, We don't need to dive into the minds of the priest or the Levite. Number five, it's not devastating because this is not the only man who passes by. A Levite also walks by the dying Jew. And even if the priest didn't stop, the Levite probably would. He too was a religious man. Levites were like uh, modern-day deacons. They were assistants to the priests. And perhaps if the priest was too busy, and we'll never know why he didn't stop, but the priest, if he was too busy, the Levite would take the time to stop and help the dying man because he supposedly loved God and he was accustomed to helping people. But it says the Levite also walked all the way to the other side of the road and passed by the dying man without doing anything to help him. This man is now getting closer to death. He needs help pronto. And suddenly another man comes by. But this time it's the worst case scenario. It's a Samaritan. The dying man was a Jew. The third guy is a Samaritan. Jews hated Samaritans. And the feeling was mutual on the other side. They were both religious people, both religious groups, who claimed to believe in God, but they sharply disagreed with several points of religion. And so they actually saw each other as enemies to the true faith. His enemy just came by. His enemy. Samaritans and Jews treated each other like enemies. Theologically in our day, and this is kind of sad to, to know, but it's kind of a reality, it would be similar to how Catholics and Protestants view each other. We don't generally see each other on the same team, but we don't generally hate each other e either. In the pure hatred that the Jews and the Samaritans had for one another because they did hate each other, it would be similar to modern-day extreme leftists and rightists walking by one another on the side of the road. And I'll let you decide who's playing which role here. But if one was on the road dying, the other one might come alongside and mumble something under their breath such as they probably deserved it and walk by on the other side of the road without giving them a whole another thought. In other words, the Samaritan is unlikely to do anything to help the Jew. We're supposed to think that. He's an enemy. The first two were Jews, and they didn't help him. Why would the enemy? Number seven, but that's not what takes place. The Samaritan comes to where the dying Jew is, and he sees him in his pitiful state, and it says he had compassion. He had compassion. 
I decided to look up the word compassion. Maybe it's a word that you know and you're familiar with, but the word compassion means sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. Pity and concern for the misfortunes of others. The Samaritan felt compassion for the dying Jew. That's shocking in and of itself. He felt compassion for the dying Jew. They hated each other, but he felt compassion. But he doesn't just stop with seeing or feeling something for the Jew. He gets off his animal, he goes over to the man, and he bandages the dying man's wounds. And I don't know, did he have bandages with him? I don't, I'll never know that. But it's possible he ripped off his own clothing, turned them into bandages, and took care of the man that way. He then pours oil on him, most likely to clean him up, clean up his wounds, and then he poured wine on his wounds, probably helped to stop infection. He then picks up the man by himself, because we're not supposed to assume there's anyone with him. And I want you to imagine what that would have been like. I'm sure the dying man probably can't help himself very much. So most likely, he picks up the dying Jew by himself, places him on his own animal, most likely a donkey, and then he takes him to an inn, an ancient hotel, if you will, and he cares for him for the rest of the day. Are we shocked by this? The next day, the Samaritan takes out two denarii, which actually translates to two days' wages. So just for a nice even number, let's decide this is around $200. He takes $200 of his own money, gives them to the innkeeper, and tells him to take care of him. So this is much more than just paying for a room for the man. He compensates the innkeeper to specially care for the Jewish man because he has to leave for a spell. And he tells the innkeeper, whatever more you spend to care for him, I will repay you when I come back. You ever heard the phrase, go the extra mile? You ever heard that phrase before? It actually comes out of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. He went one mile, clearly, with the Jew. And now he decides to take him to an inn, pay the innkeeper extra to care for the man, and then he's going to go check on him and pay him even more if need be. He goes with him two miles. Those are the seven simple details of the parable. That's very simple and clear cut. But I want you to notice the contrast between the actions of the religious priest and Levite versus the detestable Samaritan. We're supposed to be shocked by the story because nothing we expect to happen happens at any part of the story. We expect the dying man to be helped by his fellow Jew, the priest and the Levite, but he isn't. We expect the Samaritan to scoff at him and pass by on the other side, but he doesn't. The Samaritan is the one who helps the man profoundly. And I want to be very clear today. This message today is not to say, see, religion is bad. That's not the point. That is not the point, that religion is bad. Instead of trying to interpret the minds of these three men today, because we can't do that with any accuracy, okay? Anything we would surmise would be guesswork and conjecture. I don't know what they were thinking. I don't know what the priest was thinking. I don't know why he didn't stop. I don't know the same about the Levi. I don't know why he didn't stop. But I don't believe that's important to what we need to see today. Because although those are the seven details, I want to notice three crucial lessons, and then we'll simply be done today, okay? Three crucial lessons of this parable that I believe are really important for those of us who say we follow Jesus Christ, okay? Number one is this. It does matter who we are. It does. 
But what we do reveals who we really are. What we do reveals who we really are. Now, the priest should have stopped and cared for the man. That's obvious, but he did not. And now, based purely upon this one text, we only know him to be a priest by his title, not by his actions, making us curious if he really is who he claims to be. If he really was a priest, shouldn't he help the man? We're at least asking that question today. James 1.27, we went through James a little while ago, says it this way, Religion that is pure and undefiled before the Father, God the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. If you want to know a definition of religion according to God, there it is. Visit, the, visit those who are hurting and keep yourself unstained from the world. So religion is not the problem here today. Wrong religion is the problem. Religious affiliation, knowledge, and position without love don't matter to God. They don't matter. Because according to James 1 and the rest of the Bible, true religion is caring for those who are in need. If we tag along with Christians, if we go to church and sing the same songs as Christians, if we wear a cross around our neck, if we read our Bibles, if we know and agree with some important doctrinal, doctrinal truths, and if we claim that Jesus is our Savior, but we don't love our neighbors who are in need. That our religion is worth as much to God as those Amazon packages you get, packages and the wrapping that come with them. Without love, it's simply wrapping. It's simply a box. It means nothing. Without love, our religion is worth nothing. Now, like many of you, I have air conditioning in my car. Does anyone have air conditioning in their car and use that on a regular basis in the summer? Um, at the beginning of the summer, though, my air conditioning was not working in my car. No cool air was coming out of the car. Okay? So it was on. In fact, I turned it up all the way, and it was basically like room temperature. No cool air was coming out. But according to the manual, the car's manual, my car has air conditioning. Okay? So there was a problem. My car has air conditioning. I turned it up all the way, and no cool air was coming out. So here's the very simple metaphor. doesn't matter if there's no cool air, if it says air conditioning, if you could turn on a vent, if it doesn't actually cool the car down. Does it matter? Do you boast on the fact that you have air conditioning, or do you actually say, at the current moment, I don't have air conditioning? Even though my car says it has it, even though I can turn the vent on, no cool air is coming out, and it's not helping me at all. So what did I have to do? I had to take it to the car shop and had them put, what do they call it, Freon? Freon in it, and it made it a whole lot cooler. Now it's working fantastic. And now I have air conditioning. See, unless we love our neighbors, what use is religion? What use is it? Who does it help? And what proof do we really have that we are who we think we are without love? See, the whole point of religion is love for God and love for his people. There is no other point. You can worship God, but if there's no love to back up that worship, it doesn't mean anything to God. It's vain words. It's like telling someone, I love you, but not actually loving them. It's the same to God. Worship without love for God doesn't mean anything. Worship for God without loving his people doesn't mean anything. So number one, 
first, num first point is this, okay? It matters who we are, but what we do reveals who we really are. Point number two is this. Seeing a need is never enough. Okay, seeing a need is never enough. In our story, three men notice the dying man on the side of the road. That's made clear by the fact that they walk to the other side, okay? If they simply would have passed on, we could have surmised that maybe they never noticed him. Maybe. But the fact that they noticed him and they walked around him to the other side of the road means they did notice him, but decided to do nothing about it. And again, notice the contrast between the actions of the religious priest and the Levite versus the Samaritan. The enemy Samaritan. All three men saw the man beaten and dying on the side of the road. And let's consider, again, we don't know this exactly, but let's consider, maybe the priest and Levite went home that night after a full day of worship and service for the Lord, feeling good about their accomplishments that day. Maybe they did. Maybe they felt very good that they were very religious that day, very devoted to God that day. They did everything they needed to get done on their agenda. And maybe they came home and told their families that on the side of the road as they walked to Jerusalem, or back from Jerusalem, they noticed a dying man on the side of the road. And even though they couldn't stop for him, they decided to pray for him. They said a prayer as they moved on without about their day. And now they're asking their families to also bow their heads and say a prayer for the man. Again, we have no idea if this actually happened, but what if it did? What if they did a full duty for the Lord at their jobs as priests and Levites, full day of service for the Lord, and they prayed for the man on the side of the road? Formal religion was accomplished that day. But what good does that do for a dying man? Does formal religious rituals help him? What does that do for a dying man? Dying people need tangible help. This is not to say that religion is bad. This is not to say that prayer is bad. Certainly not. I'm a pastor. I believe wholeheartedly in the power of prayer. Unless it's a substitute for actual acts of kindness, love, and sacrifice. Seeing a need is never enough. In fact, sometimes prayer can be a cop-out. Now, I don't usually do this, but you guys mind? I just, I need to do it. Otherwise, I won't be able to do it later. Can I check my Facebook feed quick right here in front of you guys? I know it's bad timing, not good for a pastor to do, but I just need to check this and see if there's anything important. Humor me, you guys know where I'm going here. Um, I'm just gonna read. I'm just gonna read the one that I came across this morning. Okay, it says, "Dear loved ones, I'm reaching out to you today for help. My mom is in the hospital on her deathbed, and my car broke down the other day. I currently don't have the money to repair it or to hire a cab that I might visit my dying mother. So I'm coming to any of you for help. I need a ride down to Hershey, Pennsylvania tomorrow, so I can minister to my mom in her final hours. Please let me know if you can help me. Thank you in advance." Okay, what would be the best response here? Number one, I could say, let me consider moving my schedule around to help this person in need. Number two, I could offer to pay to help fix their car or get them a cab to drive them down to Hershey. I know what I'm going to say. Sorry to hear that. I'll pray that you find a ride. Post. Okay, this is hypothetical, just like the parable. This didn't actually, this wasn't actually posted. I made that up. But do you notice what we're talking about here today? 
Are the reasons we can't help people really valid if loving our neighbor is the second greatest commandment God ever gave us? And the gateway to the first greatest commandment he ever gave us? Are the reasons we cannot help people valid if we've been put on this earth, redeemed from our sin, to love the Lord and love our neighbors? This is essentially what's happening in this parable. A clear and desperate need is noticed and realized, but only one person out of three decides to do something to help the dying man. And the other two justify the reasons for why they can't. It's never enough to notice a need. Now, we might not be able to do everything, okay? And on occasion, we genuinely might not be able to do anything profound, and that is exactly when we should stop and pray. But how often do we, cons- do we stop and consider that maybe we should be the person to help those in need? Maybe it should be me. Maybe me. Maybe I'm the one I should pray and ask the Lord for help for the person, for the situation that they're in. Even if I have to miss a meeting, lose some money, ruin my schedule, or even endanger my life, maybe my loving them is exactly what's needed at this moment. Because seeing the need is never enough. And the way that we know that is the response we find in 1 John 3.16. Now we know John 3.16, but listen to what it says in 1 John 3.16. TGD just read this passage. Listen to what it says. By this, we know love. Think about that phrase for a moment. By this, we know love. That he laid down his life for us. Let's just think about that for a moment. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. How do you know God loves you? Because he said it? Because he wrote it in his Bible? Because you hear it in a bunch of love songs, Christian love songs? Or do you know love because he laid down his life for you? That's what John says. That's how you know love. And then he says, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, even prayer sometimes, but in deed and in truth. Is that radical? To actually love someone versus giving them well wishes? Maybe saying a prayer for them as we go about our day. Is it radical to hear that we actually should do something for those who are in need? See, without love, we don't know if we have faith in Jesus at all. That's what John says. If you don't love, if you don't show love in your life, then there is no way to validate that God's love is within you. Because the way that you know love is he laid down his life for you. And the way that God knows your love is that you lay down your life for the brothers. That's the equation. And if you don't lay your life down, there is no way to validate that you actually have faith. If Jesus did not lay his life down for us, there's no way to validate that he loves us. But he did, didn't he? He laid down his life so that you and I could have life. Number three, love is not a chore but a privilege of serving and belonging to God. Love is not a chore, it's a privilege of belonging to God. Now, we don't know much about the priest and the Levite, but we know enough to say with confidence that they did not want to inconvenience themselves that day. Perhaps the priest and Levite thought that touching a dying man might make them unclean ceremonially. It's possible. 
and therefore unable to do their work properly. They didn't want to taint themselves for the work and the service of the Lord. Perhaps they thought if they stopped and helped the man, they might not complete all their religious duties that day and would let God down. Perhaps they thought that if they stopped to help the man, they might endanger their own lives. And then what good would they be to God? But we don't know what they thought. But whatever it was that day, loving the dying man was not worth it to them. Loving the dying man wasn't worth it to them. And when love is seen as a chore instead of the privilege of all privileges, we're doing everything wrong. When love, love for God and his people becomes a chore, everything's upside down. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, a classic passage about love, he said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned in martyrdom, but have not love, I gain nothing. You take love away from Christianity, there is no Christianity. It doesn't exist. It's hollow and shallow and vain. Here's another one from Romans 12, Paul speaking again. He said, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's the Christian message. Love. Now, I want, to, I want you to think about this, and don't answer it out loud, but are there any chores you don't really like to do? Any chores, even as adults, you don't really like to do anything with garbage or the toilet are generally at the top of my list. I don't really like changing diapers, if I'm honest. Now, a guy with seven kids shouldn't be able to say that, but I still don't like changing diapers, and I don't think my wife does either. She just does it more. Um, there's a bunch of chores we don't really like to do. Now, we do them because they have to be done. But they feel like chores, don't they? They feel like chores we don't want to do. I don't look forward to taking the garbage down or doing something with the toilet or changing a diaper. I just don't. But what if the decision was do something like that that I don't like to do or actually lose the family member that that chore would bless? What if that was the option? To do the chore or to lose the family member that chore would bless. Guys, love needs to become a privilege. And I don't think it is for the most of us in most of our days. It's often a chore. Looking at the guy and the, dy and the dying man on the side of the road, I might too have the same reaction going, does it really need to be me? I got a lot to do today. Does it really need to be me? Will anyone else help this man? I got a lot to do. There's a lot of things on my plate today. Even if I did stop that day, it would have felt like a chore, probably. Love needs to become a privilege. Those are our three crucial lessons. Now, before we close, we need to look at part two of this parable because there's a second and powerful parallel that this parable draws out. And I'm not going to say today that this parable is an allegory and that every single detail of this parable represents something of biblical truth. I don't think it does. I don't. 
But it's also impossible not to see the parallel here, isn't it? It's impossible not to see it. In our story, there's a robbed man and a dying man in desperate need of help. And two men walk by him who should have helped him, but they don't. And then there's a third man who seems like an unlikely candidate to help the dying Jew. But he does help him at the cost of his own comfort, his own schedule, his own money, his own reputation. And this man helps the dying man so much that he literally saves his life. Now you tell me, who are we supposed to be thinking about here? Let's ask my children. Let's make sure they're listening too. This will be a good test. Guys, who are we supposed to be thinking about here? Who does the parable of the Good Samaritan help you think of? Haddon, you want to take a guess? Wow, good answer. I didn't coach him. I didn't coach him. Children know the answer to this parable, that there's a parallel, a very strong parallel here. The Samaritan is supposed to remind us of the Lord Jesus Christ. This story that we're telling you today in the parable is the foundation for our very life. Because although this story may not have taken place, a story very similar to it did. The parallel is easy to see. Jesus is indeed using this parable to exhort you and I to love our neighbors. That is clear and obvious to anybody who reads it. But our motivation for loving our neighbors, although slightly hidden, is not hard to discover if we think for a moment. Why should we love our neighbors? Why? Are there any reasons you can think of? Why should we love our neighbors? Is it really that hard to discover? Once you think for a moment. If we look at this parable through the lens of the priest and the Levite, it's tempting to come to bat for them, isn't it? Sometimes I try when I look at this going, ah, was it really that bad? And I try to help them justify why they didn't stop and they couldn't stop to help the dying Jew. Because if I'm honest, I've done this very thing. I would give, I would help, I would bless, I would encourage, I would sacrifice for, I would stand up for, I would be faithful to, I would love my neighbor but I cannot because dot, dot, dot. Has anyone else found themselves doing that very thing and not only doing it, but justifying the fact that you're doing it? Because, number one, we're already doing so much good. There's already so much good that I'm doing. My plate is full with good doing. Number two, the destination that I'm going to justifies the lack of me stopping to help them. Number three, we are the ones who are hurting, and no one's coming to minister to me. Number four, we might endanger what God has given us, and that can't be a good thing. What if I endanger some blessing that God has given us? Number five, as I've used before, maybe there's someone better suited to help them. Maybe someone better suited will come by and they'll help them versus me. Or number six, God has not blessed me enough to be able to help anybody else in need. I am in need. I don't have a lot of extras. I don't have a lot to give. If God blessed me more, I would help more people. But I don't have a lot to give. See, when we look at this parable through the lens of the priest and Levite, it doesn't seem that bad, does it? The priest would continue to serve God. The Levite would continue to worship God. And the dying Jew did get better. It's a happy ending, right? It's a sweet tale of everybody getting what they need from this life. But I believe looking at this parable through the lens of the priest and Levite is exactly what we're not supposed to do. The lawyer 
who we started this tale with, was trying to test and trap Jesus at the beginning of the story. And it's likely that when he was listening to the story, that would, that's what he was doing. He was coming to bat for the Jew and the, or for the priest and the, and the Levite, excuse me. But that's exactly how we remain unlike Jesus. How we remain unlike God. We instead need to look at this parable through the lens of the dying Jew and the lens of the Samaritan. And let's do that very quickly. Let's look at this parable through the lens of the dying Jew. Okay, This Jew is dying on the side of the road. He was beaten and robbed and left to die. If someone doesn't help him, he's going to die. This is not a tiny need. Okay, This isn't even a ride to Hershey, Pennsylvania. If the man doesn't get help, he's going to die. Now, sure, the priest and Levite are busy, and they had their reasons in their own minds why they couldn't stop to help. But that matters very little to a dying man because without help, he's going to die. And if he was uttering anything that day, he might have just been saying, please help me. Please, anyone, help me. It's the same lesson we find in the story of the Christmas Carol. This is my favorite movie of all time. And uh, I just love the message. The message just seems biblical, even though it's not a Christian movie. Um, in this story, The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, Scrooge is visited by three spirits. You guys know the story. And the second spirit visits him, and they have this little dialogue, uh, Scrooge and the second spirit. And Scrooge says to the spirit, tell me, spirit, what will happen to Tiny Tim? And the spirit replied, if these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the boy will die. But what then? If he is to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. The spirit used Scrooge's own words against him to see how silly and stupid his vain attempts at justifying himself sound when it meant that a little boy might die because no one did anything to help him. And when we turn the story around and we become the dying Jew, we place ourselves in the shoes of the dying Jew, do we want to hear any reasons for why people can't stop to help us or do we want someone to have compassion for us to stop their lives and to help us in our time of need. And do you remember the message, the spirit behind the second greatest commandment? It says, love your neighbor as you would want to be loved. It's that simple. Love your neighbor as someone would love you, as you would want someone to love you. If you were the dying Jew, does a busy schedule justify your death? Does that help you feel better? If the priest says, I have a lot of religious things to do that day, I'm sorry I can't help you. Of course not. And even that is not enough to see the full picture here. We need, to do, we need to do one more thing before we close, okay? We need to look at this parable through the lens of the Samaritan. And remember, the Samaritan should remind us of someone very clearly, okay? Because we were once the dying Jew on the side of the road because of our sin. We were in that pitiful, wretched state on the side of the road. And don't you think the Samaritan had places to go? I mean, honestly, do you think the Samaritan had nothing to do that day? What about his money? Do you think he had an endless supply of money to throw around to anybody in need? Wasn't he probably a hardworking man with a family to care for? What about his well-being? Was he not putting himself in danger by lurking about where a robbery just took place? What was different about this man's agenda and needs versus the priest's and the Levite's agenda? The Samaritan, too, is a religious man and probably had religious duties. He's traveling the same pathway they are, probably doing very similar duties. What made him stop 
and help the dying man? Was he just at the right place at the right time? The answer is no. And here is where we meet Jesus. This right here is where we meet Jesus. If this parallel is, if this parable is a parallel of our Lord Jesus Christ, he had much more to lose than the priest and the Levite combined. Okay, let's consider. Before Jesus came to earth to die for us, he was in heaven with his Father. He was adored and praised by angels and heavenly beings all day long. He was honored and revered as the only begotten Son of God. He had riches and treasures that would boggle our minds. He had rights and privileges second to nobody. He had never once associated with sin or sinners or anyone who tried to abuse him or kill him. There is no reason for Jesus to stop and give up all of that to save sinners. But one day Jesus saw sinners on the side of the road, abused and beaten by the devil dying in our sins. And Jesus saw us. But come on, he's the son of God. He might get defiled simply by being around our sin, let alone touching us. He might get robbed himself and he has much more to lose than we do. And he has spiritual duties that far surpass any religious man or woman upon the earth. Nobody is busier than Jesus. Nobody. He should have zero reason to stop and love sinners by losing all his valuables. And not only that, but the sinner in the parallel story is you and I. And did we not just get robbed and beaten? No, that's not what happened. We chose to sin. See, the consequences that we face are our own fault. The dying Jew in the story is a victim of someone else's sins. But we are victims of nobody. We chose to rebel and follow the devil why would Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, help us by risk and risk losing everything he had in the process? Why would Jesus help sinners? And here's the secret. The answer to this question, the answer to the entire story, I believe, hinges upon one word. Okay, you ready for this? The entire story and message of this parable hinges upon one word. Compassion. Compassion. Now, we, lo we know this. Love is a verb, right? Love is not a feeling. It's a verb. Love is an action verb. It's a choice and a decision that we make to help somebody in need. And the Samaritan did that that day. But what got him to that place where he loved the dying Jew? The priest didn't get there. The Levite didn't get there. What made the Samaritan stop and help the dying Jew at such a cost to himself? And it said he felt compassion. He felt compassion. Remember the definition of compassion is sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. That's the definition of compassion. But compassion, unlike love, is an emotion we feel. Love is a choice we make, but compassion, on the other hand, comes purely from our heart. By saying the question, what if that was me? What if that was me? dying on the side of the road. And compassion cannot come from a hard heart. Do you know that? It can only come from the heart that has been touched and softened by God. Compassion begets compassion. See, the parallel in the story is impossible not to see. 
In Matthew 9, it says, When Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He felt compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know what Jesus did? He saw us from our eyes and he felt compassion. What if that was me? He did not just step off his throne in heaven and come to condemn us because we were sinners. He stepped off his throne and gave up everything to become a man. He was abused. He was mocked. He was rejected. And he was crucified so that he might save you and I from death. Why? Why? Why would Jesus do that? And isn't the answer because he is a God of compassion? We sit here today alive because he is a God of compassion. He feels compassion for sinners. Where are we today if Jesus does not have compassion for us? Hell is real. Hell is real. We were headed to hell because of our sin, but Jesus stopped and felt compassion for us. And he left everything, everything in heaven to come and help us. The applications today are very simple and straightforward, just like our parable. Number one, are you like the Jew? Are you like the Jew still dying on the side of the road in your sins, having not yet found salvation from your Lord? Are you in need of forgiveness and salvation? See, this tale is supposed to teach you today that Jesus, the Son of God, is stopping putting his own agenda and his own valuables and his own rights and riches aside and his own blood spilling his own blood to heal you today if you need it. That's what Jesus is doing. He's stopping to help the dying sinner even today. Even today there might be a sinner in the room who does not have salvation and forgiveness and Jesus is stopping his entire life to help you. If you're the dying Jew today, don't stop. Don't leave until you find salvation and forgiveness. That's why Jesus brought you here today. To give you life, to take care of you, to watch over you, to show you compassion. Number two, are you like the priest and the Levite? You're alive, you're forgiven, or you say that you are, you're a Christian, but perhaps you forgot how you became that way. Jesus, the Son of God, spilled his blood on the cross, and he is the only reason any of us are alive today. If we are like the priest and the Levite, and that's how we came in with our spirit, the application is for us today is remember. Remember what he did. Remember where you are today. Remember why you're here. And then thank him. Thank him and devote your entire life to him. Be like Jesus. Number three, are you like the Samaritan? Are you being called today to change your outlook on life and to stop seeing this parable and your life through the lens of the priest and the Levite and begin seeing it through the lens of the dying Jew and the Samaritan. Because we all have a choice today to make. To keep walking and passing by on the other side to those who are hurting around us and to feel justified by our own schedule. Or maybe for the first time ever, we're beginning to feel compassion for Jesus and his people today. And since Jesus stopped to save you when you were in need, are you ready to stop and help those who are hurting around you for the sake of their soul and for the sake of your soul too. 
because this is how you love the Lord. This is how you love your neighbor. And this is part two of loving to live. The Good Samaritan is only good because of love, sacrificial love. If you take love and compassion away from this tale, we don't have anything left except death and sadness. The only thing we learn from this tale without love is death and sadness. Religious duties without love meant the Jew was going to die that day. He didn't need well wishes. He didn't need, I'll pray for you. He needed compassion and love. What does our world need as well? If you take away love and compassion from our souls and our lives, we have nothing left except death and sadness. In fact, one of the very worst things about hell is there's no ability to love. We can't be loved and we can't love anybody else in hell. But on earth, we can. We can be loved and we can love others. We can have compassion for others today. And thanks to Jesus, the good shepherd, the lamb of God, we can have life, eternal life today, and we can begin helping others know the life giver as well. We can love to live today. Let us not do it as a chore, but as a privilege for the rest of our lives. See Jesus, what he's done for us, and see the privilege of doing the same thing for our brothers because it says we know love because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Will you love to live today. Let's pray. Father, this feels heavy and pointed and even in my direction, Father, I, I thank you for this message. It's often in, in American culture like we have, Father, easy to get busy and sidetracked by the things that we need to do or want to do, forgetting that our very design was to love our Lord and to love our neighbor. Father, help us not to forget our purpose, our privilege, of serving you, of being like you, of going the same way that you did, of doing exactly what you did for us, of representing to this world that there are people who care for other people. And at the top of that list are those who Jesus died for. Father, if there's someone in this room that doesn't know the love of Christ, hasn't experienced it firsthand, doesn't have salvation forgiveness, and they're still dying in their sins, I pray they would, they would realize today that Jesus is stopping to help them, to pick them up, to heal their wounds, to forgive their sins, to become their Lord and their Savior. And Father, if there's those in this room that are struggling to see people and their needs around us, Father, inspire us and motivate us by the great love of Jesus, that we too can be like the Samaritan. And we must do it if we follow Jesus. We thank you and we praise you for this opportunity to see this today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.